All right. We're, we're still on prophecy. Surprise! <laughs> um, we're going to continue to talk about um, the gift of prophecy today. This will be our third Sunday on this. And um, it's still not the last Sunday. I didn't really put an end point on it. I just thought, oh, we'll see what the Lord brings out and what he highlights. And I'll just keep going until I feel like I've reached the end of that. So today will be the third Sunday. And um, let's just go over what we talked about last time we were together, since it has been a few weeks. Um, on our last Gift of Prophecy Sunday, we talked about one-liners. There's lots of one, two, three-liners in Scripture that help bring definition to what the Gift of Prophecy looks like and how it should be exercised. So we discussed testing the spirits, using discernment, using the Word, and by watching um, a person's actions. What does their life look like? And uh, we talked about what it means to prophesy in part and to know in part. Um, when we prophesy uh, through the gift of prophecy, um, it's in part. It's incomplete. It's just part of the bigger picture. And uh, in our life here on earth, we still have to rely on faith to get us through, to see us through. Uh, we went over a few sets of verses, at the heart of which is the concept that the gift of prophecy is meant to build up. It's meant to encourage and to help everyone learn. I remember we finished up by talking about how key and important humility is when we're talking about exercising the gift of prophecy. Not uh, just for the one who is prophesying and whose prophecy is going to be tested, but also for those who are doing the testing. Humility and love for each other and unity and peace, all of those character things, all of those character of Jesus things that um, he works in us are so essential when we talk about the gift of prophecy. Um, today, we are going to talk about it again, but through a different lens. We are going to talk about what the gift of prophecy is not by looking at what the Bible has to say about false prophets. That's what we'll spend our time on today. Some Old Testament and some New Testament. First off, we'll just start by looking at a simple word study. So in the New Testament, let's talk about this word, false prophet. If you look this up, it's, it's one word in the Greek, but it is uh, two Greek words put together. Um, it first occurs here in Matthew seven fifteen. If you look it up in Strong's, it's number 5578. So you'll see here we've got the... This is the transliteration, or how you would say that Greek word using the English alphabet. And the definition of it is just a false prophet. This is what the original word looks like. If you want to, you know, memorize that and trap that in your mind, that's right there. Um, so this Greek word is consistently translated just as false prophet. Um, it's usually used in general in the New Testament. Of false prophets, one time it's used to refer to a Jewish false prophet named Bar Jesus in a story where Paul has to deal with him. And then three times in Revelation, it's used to refer to the false prophet that comes alongside the Antichrist in the end times. So, using a lexicon to look up what the definition of this is, because Strong's Concordance is more of an index. And uh, you can look at a lexicon for what the definition of the word is, which will give you more nuance of meaning. 
Um, it says, one who, acting the part of a divinely inspired prophet, utters falsehoods under the name of divine prophecies. A false prophet. So pretty straightforward. This is uh, pretty obvious what this all means. So the first, let's go back and look at the first occurrence of it in the New Testament. We'll start here in Matthew. Chapter 7, starting in verse 15. Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so you'll recognize them by their fruit. This is from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And uh, false prophets here are portrayed as disguising themselves. And they disguise themselves to look like a sheep so that they can infiltrate the sheep pen. That's how they get in. So to be disguising yourself like a sheep, it has this connotation of innocence. And you'll look really harmless, just like all the other sheep. Very innocent looking. But their true uh, motivation is very different. Inwardly, they are ravagers, like a wolf. Their true motivation is to devour the flock for their own gain. There's a couple nuances in this word ravenous that describes the wolf. There's this connotation of violence, to do violence to other people. And there's also this connotation of greed, to have a disregard for how what you do harms other people because you're so self-interested in what you want to get. So that's what that whole ravaging wolves picture is. They know they're in it for themselves, and there's no regard for anyone else. They're disguising themselves to steal and exploit the innocent for their own gain. And since a false prophet comes with all the pretense of the real thing, since they're disguised in sheep's clothing, Jesus says we have to examine their fruit. Um, This fruit, it can be referring to what's the truth that they profess. Does that line up with scripture? Uh, There's a place in Deuteronomy where Moses says, if a prophet comes to you and does all these signs and wonders, and then says, come, let us go follow other gods, you know that that is not a true prophet. Do not follow them. So that's just a simple, straightforward thing. What's the fruit of what they say? Is, is it truth? And, but I think the fruit that he's talking about most likely here is the fruit of their lives. Um, the fruit of character. The fruit of a life changed by Jesus. I'm not talking about perfection, because everybody makes mistakes. This is something that takes time. Um, every tree produces fruit. It's just going to happen. Things produce fruit. Whether good or bad, they just do. So this test, it takes time. It takes time. But its results are unmistakable. Um, Jesus here, he reminds his listeners that they know better. He says, you know better than to look for grapes and thorn bushes. You know better. When you see the fruit, you will know. Over time, if the fruit produced is bad, it's an indicator that the tree is bad. Regardless of what its bark looks like, or how big it's gotten, or how many beautiful leaves it has, he says you'll know if you see that the fruit is bad, that the tree is bad as well. 
So to sum up this first point about the false prophet, they'll often be motivated by greed and self with no regard for harming others. They may appear to be real, the real thing, but over time, rotten fruit will show itself. So that's, that's the first point. That is not what the true gift of prophecy does. Matthew has four instances of this word false prophet. The other three all really have a similar kind of spin. They all sort of say the same thing. So we will just look at one of them. We'll look here at Matthew 24, starting in verse 22. Unless those days were cut short, no one would be saved. But those days will be cut short because of the elect. If anyone tells you then, see, here is the Messiah, or over here, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Take note, I have told you in advance. So if they tell you, see, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. Or see, he's in the storerooms, do not believe it. This section of scripture in Matthew 24 is part of a long prophecy that Jesus gives. It's pretty lengthy. Commentators have differing opinions. Can you imagine that, right? That they have differing opinions. They have differing opinions of when Jesus is prophesying about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which took place in 70 AD, and when he is prophesying about the end of the age or his second coming. And what's likely here is that throughout this prophecy, it's a little bit of both. So even if this section here is strictly about what was to happen leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, we can safely say there are going to be parallels between that event and the end of the age when Jesus returns. We read many places in the Bible about perilous times coming and how those will be times of great tribulation and struggle, and there will be false prophets and all these different kinds of things. So we can still look at this with value and application to the end of the age, which is what we're going to do. So it says that false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders. So imagine if that happens. If you're testing is just surface. If it's just based on how stuff looks, you're going to be led astray. Um, he's warned us in advance. He warned us in advance so we could begin to take up that defensive position and test the things that appear to be true rather than just receiving everything that looks the way we think it should look. We take up that position. So note the circumstances in which this is occurring. It's a time of chaos. It's uncertainty. It says that if those days weren't cut short, um, it would be really, really, really bad. But they were. They are. So there's this uncertainty, this scarcity, this instability. And people are desperate. They become desperate in times like that, right? We've already seen a lot of that type of behavior. So they're just all the more likely to be looking and looking and looking in their desperation and so ready and poised to seize on a false salvation. That's a perfect setup, right? So when they hear, he's over here. He's over there. The temptation to go run to that false salvation and cling to that, and especially when it's accompanied by signs and wonders, that's really intense. 
Like, that's a lot. So what's the antidote to that? Just as a little side note here, what's the antidote? It's wisdom, which we're talking about, but also it's peace. Um, Peace is going to be like this defensive shield. It's like an insulator because it's going to keep you steady instead of freaking out and running to all these different things. So to sum up this point, the false prophet can demonstrate signs and wonders, but only with the intent of leading people astray, rather than with the intent of building up to the fullness of Christ and demonstrating the love and power of Christ. Their intent is to lead astray and to gain for self. Let's move on to Luke. So this is a simple one. It's just a one-liner, but I drew in some stuff from the Old Testament too, which gives us a good narrative description of what's being talked about here in Luke chapter 6. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the false prophets. So it's saying, woe to you when people speak well of you. Wait a second. Now, don't we read that even Jesus grew in favor among men? That's true, right? So obviously there were some people that spoke well of Jesus. And when you have good and virtuous character, there's going to be people that speak well of you. And that's good. Proverbs talks about a good reputation and how that is a favorable thing. So we've got to get a little more, little below the surface here. We have to ask, why do people speak well of a person? Is it because of their honorable and virtuous character? Or is it because that person tells them everything they want to hear and helps them justify their selfishness by comforting them and saying, oh, it's okay. You got God. He's right along with you. You just keep doing whatever you want, whatever feels good to you. If that's why people speak well of someone, that's the kind of thing that we want to see. It's also, it also doesn't follow that just because people speak ill of you that you're like a true prophet. That it also doesn't follow that just because you seek to be rejected all the time by being an extremely thorny and difficult person, <laughs> that, that's not what we mean either. Um, maybe you just are a thorny and difficult person, and that's why people speak ill of you. So let's look at this story from King Ahab's life um, to kind of define this better. This is from 1 Kings chapter 22. So the king of Israel gathered the prophets, about 400 men. And asked them, should I go against Ramoth Gilead for war or should I refrain? So he's trying to figure out, he's got Jehoshaphat here and they're going to go to war together. And Jehoshaphat's like, hey, we should seek out some prophets here and find out what they say before we commit to this. And Ahab's like, okay, I'm going to go along with this. So it says that they replied, march up and the Lord will hand it over to the king. But Jehoshaphat asked Isn't there a prophet of the Lord here anymore? Let's ask him. So he's seeing this and he's like, something is fishy here. These guys seem like yes men. Like they're just telling him, oh yeah, go do that. The Lord is with you. And Jehoshaphat is like, there's got to be somebody here that's a true prophet. So the story goes on. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there is still one man who can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies good about me, but only disaster. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. So the story goes on a little bit further down here. And this is where we end up. 
So he went to the king. This is the prophet that Ahab hates. So he went to the king, and the king asked him, Micaiah, should we go to Ramoth Gilead for war, or should we refrain? Micaiah told him, March up and succeed. The Lord will hand it over to the king. But the king said to him, How many times must I make you swear not to tell me anything but the truth in the name of the Lord? So what I think is happening here is that Micaiah is highlighting the ridiculousness of the yes-men by just repeating what they're saying. Oh, yeah, just go on up. And Ahab knows that that is not really what he means. So he goes on to say, So Micaiah said, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, they have no master. Let everyone return home in peace. So the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, didn't I tell you he never prophesies good about me, but only disaster? So this is a great example of what I'm talking about. King Ahab, he has his bevy of false prophets. They tell him what he wants to hear. They reassure him. And uh, they helped him justify his godless ways by lying to him and telling him that God was still with him. Um, They validated his unrighteousness by speaking falsely for God, and he favored them because of it. He spoke well of them because of that. Now, the one true prophet, he hates because that prophet exposes him with the truth of the situation. Ahab does not have the Lord's favor. So to sum up this point, what's the fruit of of a supposed prophet's ministry. If people show them favor or not, why? Um, Do they tell people whatever they want to hear? Do they encourage people to fleshly living? Or do they prophesy to the building up into the fullness of Christ, not compromising the truth? Do they prophesy in love and build people up to be more like Jesus? Lastly, we are going to look at Second Peter and talk about another Old Testament story that Peter brings up. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. All right, so Peter here, he does say there will be false teachers among you. Um, I still think this has value as he's drawing this parallel between false prophets um, in Jewish history and the false teachers in the church. Also, when we talked about what the gift of prophecy looks like, we talked about all the different contexts that the gift of prophecy can take place in. And sometimes that's in teaching. So I think it's still of value to look at this, these verses through the lens of the false prophet. Let's start with they're going to secretly introduce destructive heresies. Uh, So main thing to point out here. How do they come in? They come in secretly. They come in, what this means is alongside other things. So it's not obvious immediately when these things come in. So it might look like, well, a bunch of truths, a bunch of true things are being taught. Um, There is this seed of some destructive heresy that is brought in alongside that. It's introduced purposely and cleverly alongside the 
all of that other teaching while people are preoccupied with other elements of what's being said. Um, These false teachings will be such as those that even deny the master who bought them. So if you think about that, think about the verse that says that you were bought with a price and that you are not your own. Um, To deny the one who paid that price for you is to say, I'm my own and I can do what I want. And if you look at this word here, depraved, right here, their depraved conduct. When you look into what that means, it has undertones of sexual immorality and sensuality. And there's this other word here that I think fits it perfectly. It's licentiousness, which just sounds like a big nonsense word, but it has an important root right here. What do you recognize? This is the word license. So to say, you didn't buy me. I'm my own. I belong to myself is to say, I have license to do whatever I want. And that's essentially licentious behavior. And so that is what they encourage. That's what they bring about. And there's many ways to do that. People can do that in word, in what they say, or people can say all the right things and they can do it in deed. You know, how do they live? How do they encourage other people? Um, Do they draw other people away from the Lord and encourage them to this depraved sensuality, which is what's being talked about here. All right, so this doesn't just affect them, right? It'll be to their own ruin, he says, but not just them. It'll be for the ruin of those who follow them. It says there'll be many that follow them in their depraved ways. Um, Oh, I already talked about this. I'm just missing where I'm at in my notes here. So this will all reflect poorly on true Christianity. Rather than glorifying God and declaring him as creator of the universe, which is what the church does, it's people don't see it with their eyes, but we're here telling them right now, he is king. He is ruling and reigning right now. He lives and he is coming back. That is our declaration. Rather than having that be their declaration, they just bring contempt on the Lord and blasphemy on the Lord, um, which leads people astray. So looking at verse three here, it says, in their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. So look again here, we have this greed piece, this uh, covetousness piece again. Um, I found it really interesting when I looked into what it means to exploit, what it means to exploit you. To exploit means to trade in, to traffic, to make gain from, or to make merchandise of. So false prophets, they will metaphorically buy and sell you like merchandise for their own increase, for their own gain. It's just a commodity. People do not matter, and they'll just do whatever they want to do for their own gain. To make merchandise of God's people is pretty dastardly. So that's what they'll do. This description in Second Peter goes on, you know, God gives warnings from the Old Testament about people that were in rebellion. And this description is pretty long and goes on. And central to all of it is this greed and sensuality or depravity based on this distorted idea of freedom. That licentiousness, that license to self. I can do what I want. I am free. That is not the freedom that we understand. That, that's 
That's a distorted view of that. So Peter also says in this, did he say it in this part? In 2 Peter 2.15, Peter says, They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. What's the story of Balaam? If Peter says that they've gone the way of Balaam, what's the way of Balaam? You guys familiar with that? You're probably really familiar with the donkey part, right? I know that's the part I know. I know Balaam's donkey part, but there's more to the whole story. As I looked into it, I'm like, I should know more about this because it's very fascinating. And the fact that Peter used it here as an example, he really nailed it. This is a fantastic example of what these false prophets do. So let's take a look at that story and this will wrap us up. This will be our last point for today. So this is the story of Balaam. It takes place from Numbers 22 to Numbers 24, starting here in verse 7. The elders of Moab and Midian departed with fees for divination in hand. They came to Balaam and reported Balak's words to him. He said to them, spend the night here and I will give you the answer the Lord tells me. So the officials of Moab stayed with Balaam. Then God came to Balaam and asked, Who are these men with you? Balaam replied to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent this message to me. Look, a people has come out of Egypt. He's talking about Israel. A people has come out of Egypt, and they cover the surface of the land. Now come and put a curse on them for me. I may be able to fight against them and drive them away. So this king in Moab is afraid of the people of Israel because they are so numerous and they're coming up to his land and he wants to do something to try to, he doesn't feel like he can overwhelm them by force. So he feels like he's got to take some other steps to take these people out. So he's asking Balaam, come and put a curse on these people. So then God said to Balaam, you are not to go with them. You are not to curse this people for they are blessed. So Balaam got up the next morning and said to Balak's officials, go back to your land because the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the first part I want to point out here is right here where it says the men came and God says to Balaam, who are these men with you? Why do you think God asked that? Did he ask because he doesn't know? Does he really need Balaam to tell him who these people are? That's not why he asked. Um, God does this. There's examples of him doing this in other parts of the Old Testament. There's an echo here. So when Hezekiah um, invites the envoys from Babylon to come and see all of his treasures, the treasures, um, he shows them out of pride. And then later they come and they capture all of that. God says to Hezekiah, because he's doing wrong, he says, who are these men that you're bringing here? What he's doing is he's asking a question to awaken Balaam's conscience. Who are these men? He's, he's saying, knock, knock, like you're already going wrong. You're, you've already accepted this. You're, you're already going wrong. So he's trying to awaken his conscience to what's happening. And notice that Balaam doesn't go, but he also doesn't tell them that Israel is blessed and can't be cursed. He's just like, I can't go with you. I feel like he's just got his foot in the door just a little bit, not being 100% truthful. That 
that Israel is blessed and can't be cursed was the final answer for this whole thing from God. But Balaam did not accept that. So they go away and they come back. They return and uh, they ask for the same thing. But this time they return with officials that are of a higher rank. And they're more desperate. They tell Balaam, the king is willing to give you anything that you want. So he's shown this uh, these higher officials that are coming to petition him and told, you can have whatever. And so rather than saying, the final answer has already been given. He says, all right, why don't you stay? I'll see if the Lord will say something different. His heart and his intentions are wicked. He knows, he already knows the answer, but he wants what is being offered. He's got that greed and covetousness piece of the false prophet. He seeks to peddle prophecy for illicit gain. That's what's in his heart, and God sees it. So God, he allows him to go. Sometimes God allows people to eat the fruit of their ways. So he allows them to go. And you know what happens? He goes, and he goes to all these different places, and he tries to curse Israel. He goes to all these different high places and looks over them and tries to curse them, but it doesn't work. Rather than cursing Israel, he blesses them over and over. And the king of Moab keeps going like, why are you doing this to me? And he just keeps blessing them over and over. That was not his intention, though. That was not his doing. The only reason Israel is blessed and not cursed by Balaam is because of the Lord's faithfulness to his covenant. Um, In Deuteronomy and other places, uh, we're reminded of what Balaam's real intentions were. Um, In Deuteronomy, it says, Yet the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but he turned the curse into a blessing for you. Because the Lord your God loves you. So the intention of Balaam was to curse, but the Lord intervened because of his faithfulness. And he turned that curse into a blessing. It was all because of God. So the cursing doesn't work. That's plan one. It doesn't work. But Balaam wasn't done with his destructive ways. Immediately following this story of blessing and cursing from Numbers 22 to 24, we get Numbers 25. And how does that start? It starts by saying, While Israel was staying in the Acacia Grove, the people began to prostitute themselves with the women of Moab. The women invited them to the sacrifices for their gods, and the people ate and bowed and worshipped to their gods. So Israel aligned itself with Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against Israel. How do you suppose that happened? That follows right after the story of Balaam. How do you suppose that happened? The exact conversation isn't recorded where Balaam suggests to Balak that they, the way to ruin Israel is to entice them through sensuality, is to entice them with these foreign women that will draw them into this idol worship. It's not recorded, but it's talked about in a few places, and one of those is Revelation 214. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. So at some point, um, Balaam used this idea, introduced it to the king of Moab. He used sensuality to lead Israel astray. So you've got that greed piece, And you have this depravity and sensuality, licentiousness 
peace. Um, And he leads them away from a devotion to God. And this part works. Um, He also, think about how he introduced that. While all the eyes, even the story, is on the blessing and the cursing from the high places and this big story of this, here comes this little seed of destruction that's whispered in the secret places. If you just entice them with sensuality, you will be able to defeat them. He introduces it through the side. Um, It's very clever, the secretive scheming. I mean, this is just one guy. This is just one false prophet. And he is massively destructive. Numbers 25 here, this is the first time that we get the mention in the Old Testament of the uh, god Baal. And Baal is going to become the primary competitor with Yahweh for Israel's devotion for the rest of the Old Testament. And this is the first time we read about him, is that the story of Balaam, massively destructive. And also 24,000, it says, die as a result of the Baal idolatry. And this is just this one false prophet's doing. He has a hand in introducing this. So we really do have to take up that defensive position and watch out for our flock and protect truth as it's been shared with us through the word. And um, we have to be on the lookout for those things and testing all things because it can really be massively destructive. Um, That's all for today. And next time we will wrap up and talk about the body and uh, how it functions together, all the different parts working together. And we'll also talk about more about character because that's involved in all the spiritual gifts. And today, um, we aren't going to have a closing song, so after I pray, you will all be dismissed. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, this stuff still exists today. There's still people that are interested in themselves, and they don't care about other people. They don't have your love for others in their hearts, Lord, and they're imposters. Lord, help us to discern truth. Help us to be loving and merciful, graceful, but also shrewd and prudent. Help us to recognize when there are people infiltrating and trying to lead astray, Lord. We trust you. We know that we hear your voice, and we believe that you're going to lead us in everything, Lord. And we thank you so much for that faithfulness. And that you're going to save us, rescue us from those things, Lord. We just trust you and believe you. And thank you for all that you're doing, Lord, and all that you've done. And I also just pray, Lord, that um, you would stir up in us those true gifts of prophecy, Lord. Help us to walk in those, to exercise those, Lord. Help us to build up the body to maturity and to the fullness of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.